0: Welcome to the World Languages Collaborative podcast, a series of podcasts aiming to help language teachers improve their craft through innovative ideas, strategies, and best practices from expert teachers. The World Languages Collaborative brings language teachers together from all over the state of Georgia and beyond to exchange ideas and perspectives on teaching and learning languages. The World Languages Collaborative Podcast is an extension of this effort and is brought to you by the Department of World Languages and Cultures at Georgia Southern University. I'm your host, Grant Gearhart, Associate Professor of Spanish at Georgia Southern. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you are a motivated educator looking for ways to improve your teaching and the classroom experiences of your students. And often that drive to improve comes with a price tag one that's frequently and unfortunately left to the teacher to pay. My guest today is Dr. Kate Good, and we talk about how she made her vision of flexible seating in her classroom come to life through crowdfunding. Kate is a dual language immersion instructor and teacher mentor in Portland, Oregon. She opted to teach as a summer job 13 years ago, and since then, her teaching career has led her to classrooms in three states and two countries. Kate now overlapped in graduate school at UNC Chapel Hill, where in 2018 she completed her Ph.D. in Romance Studies. Kate planned to teach Spanish literature at a college or university. Two years later, though, she found herself in a middle school immersion classroom populated with heritage speakers. Today, Kate shares how she re-envisioned her post-pandemic classroom seating arrangement how this change has positively affected her middle school students, and how she managed to raise the money from outside of her school and without dipping into her own personal bank account to make it happen. All right, Kate Good, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thanks for coming on today. Why don't we start with you just telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Thank you for having me, Grant. Um, I am currently a seventh grade dual language immersion teacher and teacher mentor, In Portland, Oregon. I work in the Portland Public School District. And I work as part of an immersion program that starts in kindergarten and goes through grade 12. The idea is that we have native bilingual students, heritage speakers, and English as a first language speakers in our immersion classrooms. And by the time They graduate high school; they should be able to achieve uh, the Oregon Seal of Biliteracy. And so, right now, I teach in the classroom, and I'm also leading a team that is developing the bilingual curriculum for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade in Spanish and our other partner languages. Um, I came to this job after working in higher ed for a number of years. Um, I taught. Spanish while I was a grad student at UNC Chapel Hill, and then at Grinnell College for a year. And I took a job that, you know, an alt-act job for uh, a couple of months after moving to Portland uh, for my partner's job and realized that what I really missed was being in the classroom. And so I came back into the K-12 sphere with an emergency teaching license right before COVID started and then pursued my master's in teaching, which allowed me to get the Oregon teaching credentials. And since then, I haven't looked back and I've been in the classroom uh, here for about three years.
0: And you have a unique seating arrangement in your classroom, right? Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you've, uh, you've arranged your classroom, why you made that decision um, and how it's going.
1: I do have a little bit of a unique situation here. And this started because when students came back from COVID, I noticed that their sort of readiness to be back in the school environment with all of the structures and strictures was just all over the place. And they had been at home for a year. And sometimes more with very limited sort of obligation to attend class in the traditional ways, very limited obligation to pay attention, like they would have to pay attention in a school class. And things were frankly chaotic. And what I noticed is in my classes with seventh graders after lunch, I had a group of probably two or three boys that would perch at the windowsill because it was almost like they were allergic to sitting down. They just could not sit in the seat. And this was not that unusual. Students were really um, having to readjust to spending seven or eight hours a day in school, in classes, sitting down. And if you think about yourself as an adult. Trying to sit through that many hours of meetings for a 12-year-old, it is almost impossible. So I requested initially some funds from our parent-teacher association to buy wobble stools because I knew that I needed to give my students more flexibility in their seating options as a classroom management strategy principally. I needed people to be able to come in and calm down and if they could do that by just wiggling around a little bit in their chair, that was going to help me. That was so successful. And those wobble stools were so popular that last summer I started to think a little bit bigger. And I thought, well, what else would be helpful? And that's when I thought about sit-stand desks, because instead of working at a six-inch window ledge, students could actually stand at a desk if they wanted to. And I also wanted to add more wobble stools to our classroom environment. And I look at those not only as classroom management, like I said earlier, but also instructional intervention. Because when I'm working with seventh grade students, many of them come to the class with individualized education plans, IEPs, 504s, diagnosis of ADHD. And these students might be either allowed or, uh, or encouraged to take movement breaks. And so if I can build that into my class environment, where you can be in the class, and you have the option to stand, you have the option to sit and wiggle, you have the option to sit at a regular desk, then I am meeting the needs of more of my students.
0: Uh, How has it impacted the actual language learning in your classroom to have students have this sort of uh, flexibility with where they are and how their bodies are positioned in the classroom.
1: That's a great point. I think that I was first sort of formally introduced to some of this idea of movement in the language classroom in my time as a graduate instructor at UNC, where our textbooks would say, okay, you need to go interview um, eight students to see who says you know, that they like no me gusta patinar, o que me gusta bailar. And you go around and you're looking for signatures of your classmates. And as I've looked into more middle grade pedagogy, some of the teachers that I really admire, and even some that I follow on Instagram, there's an English language arts teacher whose handle is read it, write it, learn it. She talks about incorporating movement breaks and how important they are. So I view them as not only important in a language classroom, but really across all subject areas. In a language classroom, what I notice is that, for instance, the wobble stools are really lightweight. So they allow students to pick up and move that stool to different places in the classroom um, and work with different partners if they need to. Generally, I assign seats. Again, that's a tier one intervention that is designed at maintaining some order in the classroom. But I also will encourage students to stand up and move around and do those same types of interviews and uh, partner conversations that I would have done with college students. The difference is with middle school students, I almost don't think it's optional. I think that a movement break is absolutely essential to any part of the class. Um, Another way that this you might see this and this movement and flexible seating in the class is, let's say we're doing an activity where students need to find definitions of words, or we're introducing some new vocabulary. Well, I'll post vocabulary with an image and a definition, maybe a sentence in 10 different spots around the room. So students will take their notebook and they'll walk around to each spot. I could just as easily project those 10 words and the definitions on the board and everybody stays still. And it's really less efficient to have them move around the classroom, but it's good for their focus. Um, I would think I would also add that I think like the most important change I've seen is that when I redirect students now, I have a place to send them. So I have a couple of students in one of my largest classes, which is 35, who I don't even think are aware of the fact that they Walk around the class and just pace during class time. And now I've had some one on one conversations with them after class where I say, okay, you know, remember you need to be in your area. But now I have the flexibility to say, hey, so and so, you want to go to your area and you have the choice to sit or stand. And it gives them some more agency in, well, how do I want to be in this classroom right now? And it also allows me to say, okay, you can stay standing, but you need to be standing at your desk so that you can be reading and writing on this assignment we're doing.
0: So what are some of your favorite activities to use with, uh, it sounds like you teach some some large classes. 35 to me sounds like a lot for a language class, especially if you're trying to teach for proficiency, if you're trying to teach for language acquisition. It's just a large, I, I like to think of my classes as, as sort of cocktail parties. That's a big cocktail party, right? 35. So how do you sort of manage that? Um, or what are some of your favorite activities to use with so many students?
1: That's a great question. Um, That 35 student class is unusual. Most of my immersion classes are smaller and intentionally so, um, because students are doing two tasks in these classes. They are responsible for content. So that's language arts content that's delivered in Spanish or social studies content that's delivered in Spanish. So the 35-student class is big. Um, Some of the ways that I will get students talking to one another, moving around, is by assigning groups on the board and saying, "Okay, so group one, uh, your task is to read your section of the text. And um, you're looking for dates in the text. This is in a social studies class. And then you're gonna create a little mini poster that we're gonna put on a class timeline to show what's happening in this period in history. Uh, A lot of the tasks that I have my students do in class are really aimed at differentiating the instruction because I have a huge variety of learners and this was not something that I saw in my college level classes. I have students in my classes that are non-readers and writers. They're emerging readers and writers. Students that are reading and writing on a second or third grade level. And then on the other end, I have students who are reading well above grade level. And each student is entitled, and legally so even, to learning that meets their rate and level. So. With the group work that we do, I can differentiate and assign one group a text that's a little shorter or that has more visual cues in it and one text, one group of text that's longer. Uh, Then in a jigsaw style, they can come together and uh, swap ideas with other groups. Some other strategies that I've used that have worked really well are things like give one, get one. So you have one answer uh, to, let's say, um, like, what's your opinion on, this is a topic we did a a couple weeks ago, who's responsible for educating students about drug use? Is it parents or schools or families or schools? And so I'm going to circulate, I'm going to give you my answer, you're going to give me your answer, and then we're going to keep moving. other tasks that are sort of similar to that um, would be interviews. What does compañero uno say? What does compañero dos say? How are they similar or different? Um, so that, that's just some of the ways I build in those speaking structures, movement breaks, group work in class.
0: It sounds like your classroom is very a very social place. And I imagine that your seating arrangement has played a role in its success. Um, what would be your advice to someone who's thinking about maybe adopting an alternative seating arrangement in a in a language classroom? Let's say at the middle school, high school, uh, even even um, post secondary level. Yeah. What what are some of the things that we should be looking out for in terms of obstacles, opportunities? Just give a little advice.
1: Okay, so I have a couple of things that immediately come to mind. One is to begin with the question, what is the problem you are trying to solve? Because it rather than just beginning things and saying like, "Oh, I want to experiment with this." Think about, well, what am I trying to do? Am I trying to sit different students ne- or seat different students next to one another? Am I trying to allow for aisles for movement in the class so that I can circulate more easily or so that students can circulate more easily? Am I trying to create small groups, large groups? So start with that problem in mind. The second thing I would say is to gather data. And as teacher researchers, we are in our classroom every day and there's lots of different ways that we can gather data. It can be something like just an informal note myself after the class of like this, this seating arrangement worked well here. These students need to move back um, from the front of the class to the back of the class or vice versa. Um, Or it can be something like tally marks. Like today in class, I noticed that I was able to uh, check in with students in these zones, but not in these zones. So tomorrow I know I need to move things around so that I can work in those different zones. So gathering data helps me figure out what's working and what's not. Uh, At the end of last quarter, for instance, I talked to students because the desks were arranged in a pattern where students were shoulders perpendicular to the board so that they were facing one another. And what students were constantly telling me was, maestra, when we're doing that, it's like we're facing one another and talking, but we're not really paying attention to the board. We're not paying attention to what you're doing. And these are, these are pretty self-aware seventh graders here who are saying, actually, I need to be facing you in order to pay attention. So this quarter, we tried something different and I put the desks in, uh, in rows facing the, the board. But what I've noticed is that students now, if they're working in small groups, might turn their chairs around so they're working with the desk behind them. So they're still getting that partner talk time. And the third thing I wanted to add was this idea of learning protocols. So this is a way for students to come into class and know what to expect. And we can use our seating as part of this. So some of the ways I've seen this happen are desks are tagged with um, shapes, colors, numbers, and one of the protocols in the class may be okay. Today, triangle groups are working with one another. Today, number ones are working with one another. Today, red groups are working with one another. And when this is already designated on the desk, the groups are already made, students know what to expect and they're ready to go. So this helps even out transitions and it's also something that I think about as an SEL or social-emotional learning intervention because the classroom becomes a predictable space. I know I'm going to walk in that class. I know that my maestra is going to ask me to work with a different group. And the only variable is which group I'm going to. Um, Zaretta Hammond, in her book about culturally responsive teaching in the brain, mentioned this idea of learning protocols as something that's really critical, especially um, at the K-12 level, that I think is something that would be great in higher ed too.
0: I'd also, I think it's really valuable for you to talk about how you were able to get these desks, because just for our listeners, I knew Kate in graduate school. We overlapped for a few years. Um, And then it showed up on LinkedIn that she was sort of Raising money to help fund these desks, and it was through something I wasn't aware of. I think it's worth sharing how you're able to uh, get funds to do this um, in sort of a crowd crowdsourcing type of way. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: I fell into the crowdsourcing of funds for classroom materials uh, after talking with our school librarian here and saying, oh, I want to buy a set of books for my students. And after living as a graduate student, making you know under $20,000 a year for many, many years, and then finally having a teaching salary, I, you know, I was feeling flush. Okay, I'll just go ahead and buy the book set. This is no problem at all. This was sort of the early teacher enthusiasm I had. And she was like, wait, 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 you don't want to do that. Go ahead and start a donors Choose account, which is a crowdfunding site specifically for K-12 public school teachers, um, where they upload the project that they want to do. It's vetted by Donors Choose. And then Donors Choose uh, allows you to share the project on social media and even reaches out to their own contacts to get the project funded. And every once in a while, you'll find things like, okay, this month there are matching funds for this type of project. Or um, teachers in Oregon have matching funds for this type of project. So my first project on there was actually trying to build a library of diverse books for my students. And it went so well that I thought, I'm gonna try that again. And a year later, I pulled together a second Donors Choose for the flexible seating options in my class. And Donors Choose gives you uh, some guidance and they say, hey, typically projects under X number of dollars, and I can't remember that number off the top of my head, it's like $500 or $1,000 are funded. And my project was over $1,000. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go out on a limb a bit. Because I think it's valuable to have three sit-stand desks and six new wobble stools. And so I went ahead and launched it. Even though I was over their suggested amount, I posted it to my Instagram, my Twitter, and my LinkedIn. And donations just came in. And you have the number of months to get all of the donations. Uh, and so, as I realized I was getting closer and closer to the end of the project, I'd post updates on social media and say, Okay, we're this much funded. And all of a sudden, a new stream of donations would come in. Or I'm now $175 to completion. And all of a sudden, a new stream of donations came in. Um, and it was amazing. And all of a sudden, the project was funded. So, I've had a really great experience using Donors Choose as a fundraising platform. Um, they are very transparent in how the funding is used. The materials that I requested are not my materials, they belong to the school and my students. Um, So for instance, if I were to move schools later on, the materials would stay here um, with the student body that the donors originally intended them for. And if your project isn't funded, they will allow you to create a new project And give your donors the option to roll over their funding into that new project. So if something isn't funded, it's not like the money vanishes, you can, I could have created a smaller project and say, okay, I'm just going to try for one sit-stand desk and ask my donors just to contribute to that. And it would have worked similarly. But I highly recommend uh, trying it out rather than just paying out of pocket for, for things that would benefit your students.
0: I think teachers, especially really motivated, highly motivated teachers like yourself, find themselves in a, in sort of a corner where you know you need something that's gonna really enhance the learning, enhance the student's experience, enhance your teaching, and there's just not enough money for it in the school's budget, right? And so we often tend to say, well, I'll dip it in my own pocket because I really believe in this. I, it's interesting to hear about donors choose because this is a way to reach out to folks and obviously you're not obligating anyone to donate, right? And this podcast in no way is affiliated with donors choose. Um, but it sounds like an interesting way to to get funds so that you don't have to get into your own earnings, your own money, uh, for something that really should be funded uh in other ways, let's say, right? Yes,
1: yes. And I I remember reading um an advice column for new teachers. And one of the things was stop paying for so much out of pocket. And that really sunk into me because I thought, okay, there's like all sorts of neat things that I would like for my classroom, but can I figure out another way? Can I figure out other funding streams? Because even though a teacher's salary is more than a grad student salary, it's still not um, it's still not crazy money. And it's good to stop and reflect and think about, well, what other ways do we have? Uh, and donors
0: choose is one of them. Hey, you're doing an excellent job. Your students are so lucky to have you as their teacher and your school is very lucky to have you as one of its leaders. Uh, I admired you greatly in, in graduate school and all you did there. Uh, and it's awesome to see all the success that you're having at the pro- professional level. Um, I'm going to link in the show notes some of the things that you mentioned in this podcast as well. Um, but I hope we can have you on again at some point uh, to discuss other aspects of teaching, especially the dual immersion, which is something that is growing in Georgia. The seal of biliteracy is something that we're really emphasizing here. And I think your perspective would be outstanding for a lot of our listeners who are in this area, uh, as well as beyond. Um, Bilingual education is, is a growing, growing field of education. So thank you for your time. Thanks for being with us today. And I hope we can connect again soon in the future.
1: Thanks so much for the invitation.
0: Thank you for listening to the World Languages Collaborative podcast. We hope you enjoy today's episode, and please give us a like and share this podcast with your colleagues and anyone interested in languages. To learn more about the World Languages Collaborative, contact Dr. Mark Linsky from Savannah-Chatham County Public School System at mark.linsky at sccpss.com. That's dot. Linsky, L I N S K Y, at sccpss.com. Again, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.